Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the Book of Acts. Here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will be discussing Acts 21, where Paul is in Jerusalem, he visits James, and a riot ensues when he is found in the temple. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation over these texts. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts 21. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is handling the technical side of our recording. Uh, James B. John, who is usually with us, seems to have gotten caught up in a time warp. Uh, the clocks changed over in England uh, and did not change into the United States. So it seems that we're out of sync. Uh, hopefully, we can get James to join us later uh, in, this, uh, in this podcast or perhaps the next. Uh, we're in the middle of a series in the book of Acts, and we're entering a new phase of the book of Acts with this particular recording. Uh, we're starting in Acts chapter 21. Uh, Acts chapter 21 and 22 go together as really one unit, but we'll be splitting that up. So uh, we'll be leaving you with a cliffhanger ending in this episode, and then we'll resume. You have to stay tuned for the next episode and resume next week with uh, the next episode. But it's one unit uh, describing Paul's journey to Jerusalem and then the riot that ensues when Paul is found in the temple, and then Paul's speech to the mob that is opposing him. That's the, that's the whole sequence that we have in chapters 21 and 22. But we're also moving into a new phase in the larger sweep of the book of Acts. Uh, I mentioned before that uh, Acts has several chapters where accusations are lodged against Paul. Uh, he's accused of disrupting Roman customs. He's accused of denying the law, and for several chapters, uh, these accusations come in various from various directions in various places, and Paul doesn't defend himself. As we begin chapters 21 and 22, that unit, that, that section of the book, Paul is arrested. He's in bonds, and he's going to be arrested uh, throughout the rest of the, under arrest throughout the rest of the book. Uh, but he begins to make his defense. And so for the first time, we have the second phase of a trial scene. We have from about Acts chapter 20, uh, Acts chapter 16, rather, to the end of the book is a a stretched out trial scene of first a series of accusations and then a series of speeches in Paul's defense. And we're entering into that defense phase of the trial. Uh, but we also, uh, it, it seems to me we have a, a kind of um, a very general chiasm here in the closing chapters of the book, the last section of the book. Uh, Acts 21 begins with an account of Paul's journey to Jerusalem, uh, where he's going to be arrested uh, and begin his series of uh, defenses. At the end of the book, we have Paul's journey toward Rome. So we have two travel narratives that are given at the bookends of these chapters in chapters 21 on the one hand and 27, 28 on the other. And then uh, the first defense, the first speech that Paul gives in chapter 22 matches this, the last speech in chapter 26, because in both Paul gives an account of his encounter with Jesus. We have that described by the narrator back in chapter nine of Acts. But in two, two places in these chapters, Paul describes his own conversion in his own words, and that's chapters 20, 22 and 26, and that kind of bookends the series of speeches. And in between that, he gives uh, his defenses before several, several others. He gives his defense before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23. He gives his defense before Roman officials in 24 and 25, 
And then in chapter 26, you kind of have the whole, in a sense, the whole world assembled and Paul is giving his defense and uh, giving a speech, uh, particularly before King Herod Agrippa. So you have the, the Herods are present. There are also Roman officials present. And then there are also Jewish leaders present. So Paul is in that last climactic speech in chapter 26, he's basically talking to all the different courts and addressing the entire world just before he goes off to Rome. So we're entering that, uh, entering the last chunk of Acts, if you take that, that outline, with travel narratives on either side and then a series of speeches in between. It starts with a more detailed itinerary, and that is likely because Luke is now with them, and he's able to give a far more detailed account of exactly where they go, how long they spend in each place, and the movement from place to place. And along the way, they meet a number of early Christians, um, Philip, Agabus, Nason. These are all people who have been around since the very beginning. And their warm reception of Paul is a sign of the unity of the church and also of the trust that there is between those who are there at the very outset and this later mission that Paul represents. Yeah, that's pretty pretty striking, I think, is the uh, the way Paul is received and the affection for him, even in a place like Tyre, where there, we have no record of him being there, I don't think, before this. And yet, um, all uh, the Tyrians are quite uh, uh, quite affectionate toward toward Paul. It's um, apparently he is well liked and respected, you know, all across. Uh, these uh, the, the empire. Yeah, and Robert Tannehill in his book on the narrative unity of Luke and Acts points out that one of the one of the themes that's going on here as he stops in these various places uh, is, in a sense, the pressure temptation that his uh, associates, friends, maybe his fans put on him because as he as he makes his way to Jerusalem, uh, he keeps encountering people who don't want him to go. Uh, in verse four. After looking at the disciples, we stayed there seven days. Uh, looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Uh, and then a little bit later, we have the uh, encounter with Agabus in verses 10 and 11, where Agabus does this prophetic sign that Paul's going to be bound when he gets to Jerusalem. And everyone is, again, trying to convince him not to go. So there's this uh, uh, pressure. Paul has is convinced he needs to go to Jerusalem. Um, but there's this pressure from not to go. He believes it's the Lord's will that he goes to Jerusalem, but there's pressure not to go from his friends, obviously concerned about him. What is your uh, sense of what his intention is? Why does he feel like he needs to head to Jerusalem at this point? He does talk about as being a means of fulfilling his, completing his course. And whereas in the epistles, you get a sense that that completion is the return to Jerusalem with gifts from the Gentiles for the Jewish Christians as a sign of the unity of the body of Christ. Here, it seems to be in part of playing out the story of Christ in himself. He is setting his face towards Jerusalem against all dissuasion in much the same way as Christ had within the Gospel of Luke. And that determination to go in the face of all this prophecy, which in some ways you'd expect the Spirit to be giving a very clear message that, Paul, you should go or you shouldn't go. But So the message that the prophets and others give by the Spirit on the way seems to come with the import that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. 
that it seems to me is their interpretation of the message that they are bringing, which is the spirit's revelation of what will happen to him when he arrives there. But it leads to a question, I think, about the character of prophecy more generally. Um, it seems to be functioning more in an advisory sense here. The prophet isn't directly dictating to um, Paul what he ought to do, but is giving a revelation of what will happen. And then Paul has to decide how to receive that and act in terms of it, which raises the question about prophecy, but also about why is the spirit giving this revelation that actually increases the tension rather than actually relieves it? Peter mentioned Tannehill before, and I have in my notes here that Tannehill thought that the spirit's words here through these uh, disciples were intended to uh, steal uh, the resolve of Paul. Um, and then there are others who respond to that saying, well, it never says that was the intent of the prophecies. And yet that's actually what happens is Paul, it, Paul's resolve is stiffened by uh, these, um, these prophecies. Yeah, I think maybe another layer of that, uh, Alistair mentioned already that uh, you have Paul completing his mission, completing his course by going to Jerusalem as Jesus did. Prophets die in Jerusalem, and uh, so Paul needs to be there uh, to to face that possibility. So he's following in the footsteps of Jesus, and the, the you have these this pull to him for him not to go. Eventually, Paul persuades them. I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die at Jerusalem, verse 13. And then they all submit with, thy will be done, the will of the Lord be done, which uh, mm -hmm. this is kind of a Gethsemane moment for Paul. And it's part of the part of following the footsteps of Jesus that he would uh, have the tension between avoiding this, uh, this vocation that he's called to, to suffer in Jerusalem on the one hand, or uh, go in and follow Jesus and face that arrest and perhaps death in Jerusalem, if that's what the Lord has in store. It, it also occurred to me, I wonder if there's, I didn't track this out, but maybe uh, it's worth uh, suggesting. I wonder if there's some kind of transition within the book of Acts about the force of prophecy. I didn't really have anything in mind that would support that uh, as a, tracking that through, but I think we do have at least indications that there's a, there's a kind of weaning away from certain kinds of direction I think we probably said this back when we looked at chapter one many, many months ago, that you see them casting lots for uh, to choose the 12th disciple to replace Judas. You don't see lots again. Uh, they choose people and they send people on missions, but they don't do anything. They don't do any lots. They're being guided by the spirit. And then, you know, Acts 15 is this, we and the spirit agree. It seems good to us and to the spirit and to us. So there's a, there's a kind of uh, collaboration of the spirit and human decision-making in at the Council of Jerusalem. And here it seems that you have prophecy is not the kind of uh, speech that gets inscripturated. It's true and it's predicting the future, but I, I wonder if there's a kind of weaning away from this kind of direct messaging from God and uh, uh, the disciples are left in a position where they're under the general guidance of the spirit, they're responsible to make their decisions and follow, and follow Jesus, follow Jesus' example. Do you think we're to make a distinction between the speaking through the Spirit in verse 4 and what sounds like more of a proclamation in verse 11 from Agabus, thus says the Holy Spirit? How would you parse that? Well, I think the, con the difference in content supports what Alistair was saying, 
verse four, through the spirit, they urge him not to set foot in Jerusalem. They don't want him to go, which is a conclusion that they draw, but it's not, they're not speaking the spirit's words. They're prompted by the spirit to fear for Paul, but they're not, uh, uh, they don't have a direct revelation of the spirit, but Agabus claims to. And what he says uh, is what happens in Jerusalem. He does, Paul does get bound and is delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. So that actually happens, um, but that's not a reason not to go. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the, the language does suggest a kind of a looser relationship between the spirit and the words that are spoken. The word of the, pr- mm. of the prophet then might be functioning more in a, not in a directive manner, but you consult the prophet and the prophet can give you counsel from the Lord, but it doesn't dictate which way you should take. We shouldn't forget that back in Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders in verse 22 of chapter 20, uh, he himself uh, is bound, verse 22, bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Of course, the Holy Spirit tells him through Agabus, but also that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. So so uh, Paul has uh, a, a confident, assured sense that he's going to Jerusalem and the Spirit has bound him to do so. Um, when he is confronted by these other Christian disciples who are speaking through the Spirit, telling him what's going to happen, in a sense, he already knows that's going to happen. They don't quite know how that all fits in with the program, uh, and maybe Paul doesn't either entirely, but um, but they're there, like I think Peter said this earlier, maybe you said this too, Alistair, in verse 12 of 21, when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go. Well, again, the Spirit didn't tell him not to go through Agabus, just what was going to happen. Paul already knew he was going. It's interesting what uh, kind of light this might shed in a couple of directions. One, in the direction of uh, how we think about the Spirit's leading and direction, which uh, in this passage is not... Uh, that's not determinative for what we do. It The Spirit is involved in giving these promptings to people to say things, but that's not determ- that doesn't determine what action Paul takes. So uh, I think mm-hmm. our tendency would be if the Spirit, the Spirit is giving you a prompt, then you just need to do what the Spirit is prompting you to do. But there's still a discernment to be made here. So that's, that's uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things. Uh, the other interesting things is, is what it su- suggests about the planning or the idea of what you're trying to accomplish in a mission. Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem is not uh, a strategic or pragmatic one. And it certainly turns out not to be in many senses. You could make the argument that Paul was being rash and it was actually more responsible for him to follow the advice of the, his friends and not to go. But the, his mission is not driven by whether or not he's going to have success in a particular phase of the mission. It's more driven, again, by there's almost a narrative drive to close out the story that he's living, which is a a repeat of a recapitulation of the story of Jesus. That seems to be more crucial to Paul uh, or as crucial to Paul as the pragmatics of how to be most effective in the mission. Do any of you have any thoughts on why the collection for Jerusalem received so little attention within um, the book of Acts? whereas it seems to be very prominent within the epistles. Is it even mentioned? I think it's mentioned here in on, chapter 24. Um, oh, and when Paul talks before Felix? In verse 17. 
but just in passing. I don't know what what are probably particularly well thought out um, views on it, but it does seem that in chapters 21 and onwards, there is um, uh, an effort to do something which gets interrupted, like before the seven days are up, we'll get to later, there is this riot. And and it seems like there's, um, I don't know, something that's, that's disturbed here. The whole thing seems to be framed as a, a sort of anti-Pentecost. Um, so it's it's a Peter-like um, speech, but the prophecy is different. You know, it has a more sinister um, tone to it. Rather than cutting people to the heart, there is confusion and shouting and, and riots. And I wonder if part of it is is, is that sort of this disturbs what was what was going to happen. My thought was uh, to not to actually sharpen Alistair's question rather than to resolve it. Um, I mean, uh, given this, given the setup at the beginning of Acts with the the communion in in goods being part of the communion of the saints, I mean, the people selling their property in order to take care of the poor people within the Jerusalem church. That sets up an expectation that you're going to have something like that replicated as the mission broadens out. And you certainly do when you go to Paul's epistles, as Alistair said, you, you see that that's actually operating on the, you know, kind of empire wide scale and people are being bound together by the shared goods. But uh, given the way Luke starts the book, you'd think that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be inclined to make a lot of that uh, in the course of the, in course of his narrative. So that makes, just makes it even more puzzling why that's not highlighted. And maybe that should give, a sense of how important the themes that he foregrounds instead of that are within his understanding of the narrative, that all the ones that we'd expect in terms of the sharing of goods have to go into the background simply because the emphasis upon playing out the story of Christ in the lives of the apostles is the core theme for um, for Luke. You have the same thing, I suppose, in chapter 12, where at the beginning of just before that, um, Paul goes down with um, goes down from Antioch with a gift, and then returns at the end. But the whole central section concerns the release of Peter and his resurrection event. So it, it is not actually the gift that takes prominence, but the fact that the disciples, the apostles, are playing out the story of Christ. And here, that's what we see, I think, in the story of Paul. Well, let's remember, too, that everything Paul wanted to do, everything he hoped to accomplish through these alms, through these offerings, uh, is completely sidetracked by the way he's jumped in the temple. So we don't really know how this might have played out otherwise because um, uh, his intentions are thwarted. His, his uh, desire maybe to bring unity between uh, the, uh, the people in Jerusalem and Judea and the churches around the empire. Well, that doesn't happen because the Jews, at least the uh, antagonistic apostate Jews in Jerusalem, uh, won't have it, won't have any of it. Um, and so we're taking on a different narrative. The narrative takes on a different direction, be- not because of anything Paul decided, but because of what was decided uh, what they decided to do to him. Yeah. There's something very tragic about all the events. It reminds me of the climax of Luke's gospel where 
Jesus is viewing Jerusalem and, and says, you didn't know the time of your visitation. And as a result, you know, he, he weeps thinking about Jerusalem's pain. And that, that sense seems to be behind a, a lot of this. There is Paul, it seems as if even now there is a last chance. He's there to bring the gospel, to bring gifts and, and so forth. And yet they don't recognize the, uh, the time of their visitation. There's also distrust on the very point on which the arms were supposed to establish a sense of trust when they think when they, that right. he's actually defiling the temple by bringing Trophimus, by being seen with Trophimus in the um, city previously. And so what had been intended to be uh, an action that would heal distrust and deal with some of the um, questions and suspicions about Paul's mission and his larger purpose of relating Jews and Gentiles together by bringing these arms, all of that is undermined by the great distrust that is clearly there that can't be resolved and the way that they respond to a wrongly reported um, claim that he has defiled the temple rather than actually performing an action that is sanctifying within the temple. Yeah, and the, I mean, the, the point that... that uh uh, catalyzes the the riot is uh, Paul's mention of um, Gentiles being sent to the Gentiles. So the intention to heal the breach between Jews and Gentiles through the alms seems to get sidetracked. Other things seem to get sidetracked too once he gets to Jerusalem. But I wanted to, before we get to the latter part of the chapter, the second half of the chapter, I wanted to uh, raise the question about verse 9. wonder if you anyone had, uh, had uh, thoughts about that uh, what appears to be a kind of stray comment about Philip's four virgin daughters who are prophetesses. Uh, why is that in there? They don't figure into anything. There's, uh, um, you know, Philip is just the host. He doesn't give any prophecy. The girls, his daughters don't give any prophecy. So what's that doing there? I mean, I wonder if part of it is to remind us of the initial prophecy, which Peter mentions, you know, your, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Um, here are, I guess, sort of young uh, young women, daughters who are, are prophesying. Right. So it might be an indication. That Paul's in Jerusalem. Uh, in Jerusalem for the first time since the Council of Jerusalem. Is that right? But this is the, this is the last time Jerusalem is the base of operation or the, the location of the, of the uh, action. He's not in Jerusalem yet when he's with Philip, but uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, yeah, so you have the, the link back to the beginning. That's, that's helpful. Once he does get to Jerusalem, uh, he's got uh, uh, meets with the the brothers who are there, and it it does seem like we have we're kind of repeating a set of issues that have come up periodically in Acts. And again, I think there's there's kind of a structural pattern, a, a broad, vague structural pattern going on from the, the time Gentiles first become an issue in the book, which is with Peter's encounter with Cornelius in chapters ten and eleven. Uh, and then through this point where Paul is in Jerusalem and is uh, arrested and begins to speak to the Jew, Jew Gentile question in his, in the next chapter. And that becomes defending himself against the charge of being anti-Jewish is a, a crucial theme of the rest of the book. But in between that you have, uh, so you have a Jew Gentile issue in chapters 10, 11, you have Jew Gentile issue come up in Paul's speeches. You have Paul's mission in, in chapters 13 and 14. Again, Paul's mission in chapters 16 through 20. And then in the middle of that, you have the the central official decision about the Jew-Gentile issue, about the Gentile question at the Council of Jerusalem. 
So you seem to have this structure happening and you'd have a, a number of allusions in chapter 21 to the uh, council of Jerusalem. You have James show up suddenly in verse 18. The elders are present. Paul relates what's been happening among the Gentiles, which is just what he did at the council of Jerusalem. Uh, they actually repeat the decision in verse 25. Uh, this, as they're giving Paul an, a, a, pl a plan to try to mollify the Jews, they repeat the decision and remind everybody that we, we're, not, we're not reversing that or we're not rethinking it. But within the framework of this decision, Paul still has the opportunity to try to calm the, calm the Jewish and, and, and refute the Jews' uh, charges. So this seems in, some, in, in a number of ways seems to be a kind of uh, repetition or at least link back to the Council of Jerusalem. And yet it is surprising that we don't read of Paul's maybe pushback on some of the accusations here, instead of him engaging in a debate, even a friendly debate with James and the elders about the accusations against him, he, without saying anything, really agrees to do just what they say and take these four men uh, into the temple in, as a show of faith to this party in Jerusalem who are zealous for the law. Uh, does anyone find that surprising? You do. Yeah. I mean, what do you? I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think, Jeff? Are you thinking that this sort of portrays him as going forward, knowing that all manner of chaos is about to um, erupt, but sort of going willingly forward to meet it? That's one possibility. Mm. Part of his action, I imagine, is simply recognizing the or honoring the founders of the church in Jerusalem, um, James and the other mm. elders who are the pillars there, and in acting in that way, he's becoming all things to all men. He's putting um, the concerns of the unity and well-being of the church ahead of his personal rights. Um, it's a similar thing, perhaps, to what he does in the case of Timothy when he circumcises him in chapter 16, mm -hmm. um, becoming as a Jew and those under the law to reach those in that condition. It's an expression of uh, his, the passion that he has for the salvation of Israel that uh, he talks about in Romans. One thing worth bearing in mind here, um, we read this very much as Paul's journey and all the purposes that he is achieving through this. It's also Luke's journey. And this would have been a crucial period of time of research for Luke, both for his gospel, presumably, and also for um, the book of Acts. He spent time with Philip in his house. He's spending time with James and Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem. He's spent a, a while in Caesarea. He's presumably met Cornelius. And when he talks about eyewitnesses, this is the sort of time when he's interacting with those eyewitnesses. He's very much in the shadow and the background of the narrative. But this is an absolutely crucial part of the story for how the story comes down to us. That's a great point. The, the we section here ends in verse 17. And I don't think it picks up again until 27. So that Luke, even though he's not uh, directly involved in what Paul is doing, he's no doubt um, gathering information, evidence, interviews with people, um, both in Caesarea earlier, where I'm sure he found out about 
Cornelius and all the detail we have there. And now, of course, in Jerusalem and everything he needs to find out for the gospel. Good. That's a great point, Alistair. I don't know about you guys, but reading through this chapter, I just get the picture of Jerusalem at this point in time as a real like, pressure cooker. It's a large city and a mass of different cultures. And we know it has this rhythm where each feast, it gets filled with visitors from all over, which must have created an unusual dynamic. And then you have all sorts of other things. There is obviously still the dark clouds of Jesus's words in the Olivet discourse hanging over it. You know, it's a place where Stephen has been killed. Uh, James has been slain. Paul has been rescued from there um, at least once. And it seems to have real problems in terms of sort of justice and, and crowds being stirred up. So the uh, Stephen is charged by false witnesses. The same is about to happen to Paul. And I know that there are riots elsewhere in the book of Acts, but I mean, that's covering maybe 10, 15, 20 years. And yet it feels like almost every time things converge back in Jerusalem, there is this uh, tension and, and a threat that something is going to uh, break out any time. <laughs> the Romans had that that sense too, which is why they uh, built Fortress Antonia right next to the temple precinct, so they can keep an eye on the rebellious Jews. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly no different from uh, Gentile cities. Just a couple chapters ago, we uh, they were in Ephesus and had a very similar event there. Uh, some of the same language is used to describe what happened to Paul. And what's happening with the crowd? He gets dragged around. He gets he, he's seized. It's the same same kind of scenario. Jerusalem should be different, but uh, Jerusalem is as bad or worse than the Gentile cities that Paul encounters. The crowd seems to play a very important role within um, both Luke's gospel and in the Book of Acts. The crowd just cannot be controlled by the leaders. The authorities are afraid of the crowd. They back in chapter five when they're trying to take the apostles. They're afraid they're going to be stoned or the um, official, the captain and the guard that are sent to capture them are afraid they're going to be stoned if they do so in any forceful manner. Um, in the Gospels, their leaders are concerned that if they take Christ at the time of the feast, there's going to be all sorts of trouble with the crowd. And so they have to take him secretly. It it seems like it's just this volcano that's waiting to erupt. There's, it's so volatile, there's no way in which they can truly um, control this. And here come these apostles and Christians. They're teaching in the temple. They're going to the place where it is most volatile. They're not actually um, making things easy for the authorities here. And while they're offering peace, they are doing so in a way that makes things very complicated for those who are so invested in maintaining the status quo that they'll do anything to cover up certain things. Don't raise this man's death because you're bringing his blood upon us. Don't um, do anything to disturb this fragile situation. And although Paul is sent to the temple in a sort of attempt to um, mollify some of the criticism that his mission has faced, it ends up just being the catalyst for uh, a running together of the crowd, which maybe draws our mind back to chapter three, where that's the re reaction of the crowd after the healing of the man in the beautiful gate. And it just, at this point, it's a far more ugly event. Um, but we're seeing something of just how fickle and um, 
how the crowd can go in any direction and no one truly contains it or controls it. Right. What do you think of the charges that are brought against Paul? He's teaching the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children. He speaks against the temple, against the people, against this place. Grounds for truth in that, in what we've read of Paul up to this point, or is that just completely fabricated? I think one of the key steps for that would have been when they left the synagogue and a number of the Jewish Christians left the synagogue too, when they're joining the churches and not being at the synagogues anymore. It would not be surprising if, as a result of that, a number of them would have left the um, practice of circumcision. They would have left um, rigorous dietary requirements, this sort of thing, and primarily lived among the Gentiles as if they were Gentiles themselves. So I imagine there would be some ground for that concern. Paul wasn't necessarily advocating that, but his actions and the opposition that he was facing from the Jews and the way that that led to a split off from synagogues, I think would have had that effect. And speaking against the temple, we haven't uh, we haven't uh, seen Paul alluding to any of the other apostles alluding directly to the Olivet Discourse, but uh, James has just mentioned that that's a that's something that affects the way that the uh, Christians are regarding the temple and the city of Jerusalem. That's they they know that this this doom is over over the city, and we had seen. Um, uh, rebukes to people who are putting their trust in temples, which is a, you know, that's not that's part of the part of the heritage of Israel. That's a that's a prophetic theme. Don't trust in the in the stones. Don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Uh, but still, that could be that could be construed as a as a uh, an attack on the temple itself. So they're taking they're taking things that Paul has said, and then I think Alistair, uh, you're right. There are things that are the effect of Paul's mission. Uh, that he doesn't necessarily advocate or directly intend. Uh, and those are the data points that they're putting together into this charge that he's anti-Jewish and hostile to uh, hostile to Jews remaining Jews. And that's all true. Uh, but also these are Jews that have come from Asia. So they've, they've followed Paul from Asia in verse 27. We read that. And um, if we look at, some of Paul's epistles, like to the Thessalonians and others, you have these very strong words against the Jews. Remember, um, so so the the for example, the second letter of Paul to Thessalonians, where he uh, talks about the judgment of God and them being worthy of it in in chapter one, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted uh, when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Um, that also relates to the Jews because he, he mentions explicitly the Jews earlier on. Um, and now I'm, I'm completely missing where that is in the, in the, in the two letters. Um, so I'm just wondering whether, that kind of the kind of language that Paul uses here, you know, sticks in the craw of these Jews because oh yeah, here it is. It's in First Thessalonians uh, two verse fourteen. You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove us out, 
and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, reference back to Matthew uh, 23, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. So there's some justification for them saying that Paul has spoken against the Jews and 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 Judea. Not the Romans take on a significant uh, role here uh, in this in this scene, and then really for the remainder of the book of Acts, that Paul's dealing with Romans constantly. This is one of the places in Acts where the Romans intervene. Uh, not necessarily with the intention of protecting the Christians, but they intervene in order to stop a stop a riot and remove the cause of the riot, as they think, uh, Paul. Uh, but they end up protecting the church against their persecutors. And the, the commanders, the sequence of uh, the uh, revelations to the commander uh, is interesting. The commander comes, sends his troops in to grab Paul out of the multitude. They can't figure out what's happening because the, the crowd is too volatile and and loud they're just crying away with him away with him as they did with jesus uh, and then when they get back to the barracks uh, paul begins speaking and he begins to learn things about saul uh, about paul that he wasn't aware of previously uh, that he's not the egyptian that he's can speak greek that he's a jew and that's that those revelations are going to continue right to the end of the next chapter when the commander learns that paul's a roman citizen so you have this gradual unveiling of uh, paul's identity uh, to this Roman commander. Then um, it's the beginning, as I said, of a, a lengthy section where Paul's interacting with, uh, not just with the Jewish accusers, but he's constantly interacting with Roman officials. One of the things that occurs to me as I was going through this chapter is just the way things seem to be um, speeding up and accelerating quite a lot in terms of Jerusalem and its disintegration. And it reminds me very much of just the last days scenes of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. So, I mean, if you go through the Book of Jeremiah, for instance, as you come to the last days of Jerusalem there, it was just this acceleration of events and the things on Jeremiah's timeline start sort of clustering together. And Jeremiah is there and he is slandered and he's sort of speaking, criticizing those in the temple and he's imprisoned and sort of, and yet all the time there is this siege round it. And there just seems to be that uh, acceleration of events and threats outside while there's chaos within. And uh, a lot of what's going on here just reminds me of, of, of all that as I guess Jerusalem does approach another big sort of apocalyptic moment in, in, in her history. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.